This episode of Check the Locks is brought to you by our friends at Audible. Audible is your one-stop shop for audio entertainment where you can always find the best of what you love or discover something new. That's right. Audible offers an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from mysteries, thrillers, biographies, and of course, true crime. And as an Audible member, you can choose one title a month from their catalog to keep forever, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. Audible members also get access to thousands of podcasts from popular favorites, exclusive new series, and this very podcast you're listening to now. Plus, the Audible app makes it easy to listen anytime, anywhere. While traveling, working out, walking the dog, doing chores, Audible makes listening anywhere easy. And best of all, Check the Locks listeners can try Audible for free for 30 days. So head over to audibletrial.com slash check the locks or click the link in the show notes to start enjoying Audible today. Warning, Check the Locks podcast is a true crime podcast and may contain graphic descriptions of violence, murder, sexual assault, and more. Check the Locks podcast is not appropriate for all listeners. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Welcome back to Check the Locks Podcast. As always, I'm John Connor. I'm Olivia Cornu. Saying thank you for joining us this week as we dive into yet another truly terrifying true crime case. Before we get started, as always, Olivia, it's wonderful to see you. How are you? How has your week been? Well, if that big yawn I just did right before I went to speak doesn't tell you, I'm tired. I'm fatigued. I got a lot going on. How are you? I'm right there with you. I've been battling like some sinus infection thing. We are recording. We're starting our session at 1045 tonight. So I know it's going to be a long one, but all that being said, I think being tired is kind of a trend of this podcast, (laughs) which, you know, I think we just have to lean into, but still super excited to be here. Super excited to cover this case. And as always excited to get to hang out with you and cover these stories. And I say it all the time, but this is one of my favorite parts of my week. So just glad that we get to do it. Me too. Well, this week is your week. Talk to me a little bit about what we got. What are we getting into this week? Well, did you read my show notes? I mean, I did. did you read my show notes? <laughs> you read them all the time. <laughs> I did. Yes. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this case? You know, I hadn't. This took place the year that I was born. So I just don't think it was ever on my radar because of when it happened. But it definitely seems really interesting. Yeah. And it actually was kind of a big to do case around this time from what I could gather. But I had never heard of it. I mean, I feel like once you hear her name, you'll either know this case or you won't. Yeah, it's definitely a name that like if I heard a case today, it would stick with me, you know. So I don't know if this is something that maybe the listeners have heard of before, but this will definitely be a first time for me. Well, what do you say? Should we dive into it, kind of break it down? Because I'm really excited to get into the details. Yeah, let's just get started. Let's do it. On the morning of March 19th, 1985, Garden Grove Police received a 911 call. On the other end of the line was a man claiming that his wife, Linda, had been shot. Authorities were quickly dispatched to a single-story home in a quiet neighborhood. Police were greeted at the door by a panicked man and a young woman holding a baby. This was David Brown, his sister-in-law, Patty Bailey, and David and Linda's eight-month-old daughter, Crystal. 
They claimed that David's 14-year-old daughter, Cinnamon, had shot her stepmother while she was sleeping. After the shots were fired, the teen ran out of the home through the back door. EMS arrived on the scene as police found that Linda was still showing signs of life. She was lying in her bed with an obvious gunshot wound to the chest. The bed was soaked in Linda's blood. Shortly after, DA investigator Jay Newell began putting the pieces together. In the room, he found a 38 caliber Smith & Wesson revolver lying on the ground. There did not appear to be any signs of a struggle in the bedroom, and only blood splattered was found on the bed. Investigators dusted the bedroom and the handle of the gun for fingerprints. Blood samples were also collected from the sheets. David and Patty were separated and the questioning began. Now 17-year-old Patty was Linda's younger sister. She told police that David was out and she, Cinnamon, Linda, and baby Crystal were home when Linda was shot. Patty remembered being asleep and hearing a loud gunshot, and in fear she hid under the covers. And that's when she saw Cinnamon run into her room firing the gun before returning to Linda's room to shoot her for a second time. Patty said that Cinnamon took off running out the back door. That's when David arrived home and called 911. Meanwhile, David was open about owning the revolver. He told detectives that he usually kept it loaded and in the dresser next to his bed. David said that he had gone out that evening to clear his head and take a walk on the beach. He told police that he got distracted by a comic book he saw in a convenience store. He spent some time in the store before heading back to the house. According to David, that's when Patty met him at the door. She was crying, telling him that Linda had been shot. David said that he felt he might faint at that time and was too physically ill to go into the bedroom to see if Linda was alive. Then David and Patty were both asked more about Cinnamon. Patty told police that Cinnamon and Linda's relationship had been rocky since she moved into the house earlier in the year. So this is super interesting to me already, and there's a large cast of characters. It feels pretty straightforward, but like a lot of the cases that we do, I have a feeling there's going to be a twist or something's going to happen later, but I want to make sure that I have it all lined up right and mm -hmm. make sure I've got the listeners there with me. So David is married to Linda and they have an eight month old daughter named Crystal. Mm -hmm. Then Patty is Linda's sister. So it's the sister-in-law for David. Yes. And then Cinnamon is his daughter. I'm presuming from a different marriage. Correct. Okay. And we'll touch base on some of that. Okay. I just want to make sure I have everything in order. Cause like I said, when there's a, a lot of characters, it makes it really interesting, but I also want to make sure I'm like, okay, I, where am I following? So, but it, it definitely sounds like this is a pretty unique family. Oh yeah. The Brown family was an interesting one. They were a lower middle-class family living in the garden grove area of orange County, California. David Brown was a transplant from the Midwest. He initially married a woman named Brenda, and they had a daughter, Cinnamon. But the marriage wouldn't last, and David and Brenda would eventually divorce. Shortly after, David moved down the street from a woman named Ethel Bailey. Bailey was a single mom struggling to raise 11 children. Damn, 11 kids. Yeah. I'm the oldest <laughs> of four, and I'm like, oh, my mom is like the strongest woman ever. Like, 11 on your own? Right. I, I can't. Uh, I can't yeah. really take care of me and my cats and the dog. Yeah, no thank you. That's why I'm like, one kid, just one. Don't need to put another one after that number. I'm <laughs> sticking to the one. Now, at this point, David was in his early 20s, and he quickly befriended Ethel. David claimed he was dying of colon cancer and asked if her young daughters could come help him clean around the house. And this is when David started to date Pam Bailey, who was a decade younger than him. So, real quick, because I want to make sure that we're not glossing over this. He claimed that he was dying of colon cancer? Because that seems like a big claim 
to be like, can I get your girls to come hang out at my house? Yeah. So there was an article that I came across and it was actually an interview of Ethel. And she was talking about how like this guy came and like offered, you know, was around and then wanted her daughters to like come and help him take care of his house because he was dying of colon cancer. And she was like, how do you say no to like a dying man? I don't think David probably thought that all the way through considering what I'm about to tell you about his relationship. Yeah. So based on what I know of the story so far, I'm going to go out on limb and say he didn't have colon cancer, which is super sketchy, super shady. And again, it just really leads me to believe that there's probably a twist coming somewhere in the story. So I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but I was just like, that's a crazy detail. I wanted to make sure we touched on it a little bit. So please go ahead. Let's just say this is probably the first one on his track record. All right. Gotcha. Now, the pair would later split and David would start dating her younger sister, Linda Bailey. And years later, when Linda was 17 and David 27, the couple would marry in Las Vegas. Now, Patty Bailey had trouble with her parents at home. Their mother was an alcoholic and she was sexually abused by her brother. So when she was 11, she moved in with her older sister, Linda, and her husband, David. And again, just to make sure I'm keeping everything in order, Patty is Linda's younger sister, but she's also one of Ethel's 11 children, correct? Yes. Okay. Awesome. Just want to, again, just want to make sure I'm following because this lady had a lot of kids. So. Yes. We're about to be at like the last of the characters to be added. No, I'm totally cool with that. I just want to make sure I've I've got everybody in order so I know who to follow and where. So. Well, now Cinnamon was close with her father and was considered a daddy's girl. She would split her time between her mother, Brenda's home and David's. David and Linda eventually had a daughter of their own in late 1984, a little girl named Crystal. And life seemed pretty normal in Orange County. So let's jump back to the investigation. Detectives were eager to find Cinnamon and other clues to help determine why a 14-year-old girl would kill her stepmother. Investigators went to Patty's room where they found a single 38 caliber bullet stuck in the wall above her bed. Because of this, detectives were inclined to believe the story Patty told them of Cinnamon firing the gun in her room. Now in the laundry room, detectives found three empty pill bottles all prescribed to David Brown. One was for anxiety, one for pain, and the other a diuretic. As the search continued, investigator Newell was notified that 23-year-old Linda Brown had sadly succumbed to her injuries and died once she arrived at the hospital. Now he sat David and Patty down and gave them the devastating news. David was chain-smoking and visibly upset, and Patty was hysterical. Detectives needed to find Cinnamon. Police called Cinnamon's mother, Brenda, only to find out she had not seen or heard from her, but she was shocked to hear the news. David told police that Cinnamon moved in with he and Linda full-time at the beginning of 1985, and by March, Linda and Cinnamon had been arguing regularly. This put stress in the house, and Cinnamon was moved into a camper trailer outside their home. Patty claimed that Cinnamon complained that Linda was too strict and controlling. Now, just three hours after Linda had been shot, one detective took a deeper look into the backyard of the home and off into the side of the yard was a doghouse. He shined his light into the tiny house and was shocked to see a small young girl curled up inside. She was lethargic and appeared to be in and out of consciousness. Cinnamon was covered in vomit, and various pills were found around her. In her hand was a folded piece of paper that said, Dear God, please forgive me. I did not mean to kill her. Paramedics on the scene quickly evaluated her as it seemed as an attempted suicide. And as Cinnamon became coherent, she was able to tell Detective Newell what happened. Cinnamon said she shot her stepmother, Linda, twice. She shared that the pair had not been getting along and Linda was too controlling. To Cinnamon, the only solution was to kill Linda. 
but shortly after, the teenager felt immense guilt, and that's when she wrote the note, went into the laundry room, took a handful of pills, and proceeded to hide in the doghouse. During this confession, she again became lethargic and was rushed to the hospital. Cinnamon had slipped into a coma. Now, detectives had one question. Why would a 14-year-old girl need to kill her stepmother? Newell interviewed Brenda, David's ex-wife, and Cinnamon's mother. Brenda was very distraught, and she told Detective Newell that Linda and Cinnamon had a great relationship. She couldn't understand why her daughter would do something like this. This made detectives question if Cinnamon was actually who killed Linda. Newell checked into David's alibi. David was indeed seen on the surveillance footage from the convenience store he said he went to while Linda was killed. And at this point, evidence was starting to come back. The autopsy proved that Linda's cause of death was two 38 caliber gunshot wounds causing acute hemorrhage. However, the fingerprints from the revolver were untestable. And the writing from the suicide note matched Cinnamon's when compared to the other family members. See, now I'm not so sure. Because at first I'm like, there's got to be a twist in here. The dad seems like a scuzzball, like maybe something's not right with him. But she just gave a full confession. And Mm -hmm. it's not, I mean, she's 14. So it's not like she's like six or seven. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, she's as that's a believable age. Yeah. I don't want to believe that this kid at 14 would commit such a crime. I think that's just always hard for me. And especially hearing about the dad, like I'm hoping that there is more to this. So. Like I said, this one, it's got its hooks in me. I want to know how it shakes out because I feel like, again, I'm missing something and I just want to know what it is. So, sorry. I just processing through as you go through the story. Well, grab your popcorn and your bunch of crunch because you're in for a real treat. Ooh, bunch of crunch. No, no, I'm down. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) Now, three days after Linda's murder, Cinnamon woke up from the coma. Police had a motive, a body, and a confession and 14-year-old Cinnamon was arrested and charged with murder. Now, in August 1985, Cinnamon was tried in juvenile court. The prosecutors had responding officers take the stand as witnesses, and they shared details of the crime scene and evidence collected with the jury. Patty Bailey would also take the stand and testify against Cinnamon. She told the jury the story of hearing the gunshot, Cinnamon firing around in her room, and then running out the back door. The jury heard of the strained and difficult relationship between Cinnamon and Linda, but David was absent from the entire trial. The DA received a letter from a doctor claiming that he was too ill to attend the trial, and Cinnamon Brown was found guilty of murder. Now, two weeks later, on August 12, 1985, her sentence hearing was held, and shockingly, her father David was present. Detective Newell took notice of David that day and saw him sitting behind his ex-wife Brenda. He was acting in a young, teenage, flirtatious way, seemingly messing with Brenda. When the judge sentenced Cinnamon to 27 years to life, David almost appeared happy. This did not sit well with Newell. The detective had a gut feeling that there was more to this story. And even though the trial was over, Newell did periodic observations on David Brown. Newell searched public records and found that months after Linda's death, David's lifestyle started to change. He had bought new cars and a new home in Anaheim Hills, paying over $300,000 in cash. Curious, Newell made a trip to David's new house. He was shocked at how luxurious it was. And while he was scoping out the home, he made a shocking discovery. David and Patty came out on the porch together, and as David went to leave, he kissed Patty on the lips. Yeah, something is not right. I mean, as a dad, even if my daughter killed my wife, right? 
mm-hmm. as angry as I'd be or like unforgiving as I could be, like I would still be at the trial. And then with his behavior, when he shows up for sentencing and then all of a sudden, like he's living a whole new fancy kind of lifestyle. Makes like my wonder. gut is telling me something's up. And like, now he's also apparently shacking up with his deceased wife's younger sister. Yeah. And she was what? 17. This is his third Bailey. Jeez. Ethel. And she's 17, if I remember correctly. So mm-hmm. you have a 14-year-old daughter, and then the woman that you're shacking up with is only seven. It's weird. It's a weird dynamic all the way across. So like I said, I feel like there's something off going on here, and like I feel like we're getting closer to it. Almost there, John. Sorry, I'm itching. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know what's, what's happening. Who did what? Newell felt he needed to investigate more. He learned that David Brown got five different life insurance settlements after Linda died, totaling more than $800,000. He also found that Patty and David married in September of 1986, which was just 18 months after Linda's death. At this point, Newell started to put together a new case. He knew that Cinnamon could not have done this alone, but he did not want to pry until she was at least 18 years old. That way, the court wouldn't be able to use the fact that Cinnamon was a juvenile against him. Now, three years after the murder in 1988, Newell was shocked when he discovered Patty was now pregnant. Newell knew that if Cinnamon knew about her father's new fancy lifestyle and that he and Patty were married and expecting, she might be willing to tell the truth about what really happened on that night in 1985. In July 1988, Cinnamon came to Newell claiming she was ready to tell the truth. The detective quickly went to the juvenile center to talk to her in person. Cinnamon told Detective Newell that David had initially told her and Patty that Linda was trying to take over his business and kill him. She said that for months he would discuss ways to get rid of Linda. He would tell the girls that if they loved him, they would protect him. Cinnamon told David just to get a divorce, for which he replied, I can't. She will still kill me. She has ties to the mob. Now on the night of the murder, the plan was for David to leave. He gave Cinnamon a handful of pills so that she wouldn't remember. She said that's when she went to grab the letter and proceeded to the doghouse. Cinnamon told Newell that she didn't remember the details of who actually pulled the trigger, but claimed that she and Patty had been manipulated by David. Newell needed more to be able to pin the murder on David. So on August 27, 1988, Cinnamon invited David and Patty to the prison, but David came alone. Unaware, Cinnamon was wearing a wire and additionally detectives were watching and taking photos in the distance. Cinnamon asked David, why did we have to kill Linda? And David played clueless and kept telling her that he didn't know what she was talking about. He kept telling Cinnamon that she was high on drugs and the idea was all hers. She was becoming visibly upset. She pleaded to David and said, why can't I just tell the truth? To which David replied, because all of us could wind up in jail. Newell hit the jackpot. He had now had enough evidence to arrest David for conspiracy of murder. Now, in September 1988, an arrest warrant was issued for David and Patty, and the pair were brought in for questioning again. David was interviewed first, and he continued to deny any involvement whatsoever. But then Detective Newell told him that Cinnamon had a different story. They also showed him the pictures of him and Cinnamon during their wired conversation. However, David continued to deflect and point blame at Patty, Cinnamon, and the made-up mob members to which he thinks that Linda had ties to, which didn't exist. Then four hours into his interrogation, David broke down and told police that he was in fact involved in Linda's murder. 
But David claimed it was Patty who pulled the trigger and that Cinny would never do it. Patty was interviewed next. With her tough exterior, she evaded every question. But then Newell played her the tape of David telling police that Patty pulled the trigger. And it was then that both Patty and David were arrested and charged with murder. The detectives needed to know who actually pulled the trigger and what really happened on the night of March 19, 1985. Again, Newell went back and questioned Cinnamon for the third time. And this time he told her that he needed to know the exact truth. Cinnamon told Newell that she was in fact the one who pulled the trigger. Around midnight on March 19th, David told Patty and Cinnamon that they had to shoot Linda tonight. He continued to tell the girls, if you want to save my life and if you love me, Linda has to die. And that is when Cinnamon agreed to kill Linda. She shared that David showed her how to hold a pillow around the gun to muffle the sound. He also reminded her to get the note that she had actually written months earlier. And David also stressed that she not forget to take the pills. And with that, David left the house. Cinnamon said she went into Linda's room and shot her one time in the chest, but then the gun got stuck. She ran into Patty's room, who was holding eight-month-old Crystal, and that's when she accidentally fired the one shot that hit above the bed. After, Cinnamon returned to the bedroom and shot Linda for the second time. She then dropped the gun and went to hide in the doghouse, as she was told. This is where I knew the dad had something to do with it, because... You know, I have sisters who were 14 and they would fight with my mom and stuff like that. And I mean, they would have some like drag out kind of fights, but it was never a situation where I'm going to get a revolver and just go in there and be like, all right, bye, mom. You know what I mean? And I knew there was something shady with the dad just from the jump. I did want to ask you, he got $800,000 from those five life insurance policies in 1985. Yeah, just about. Yeah. What do you think? adjusted for inflation that amount would be today i hope it would be like five million dollars because that's how much i feel inflation is so you're a little high it would actually be two million two hundred seventy two thousand seven hundred ninety five dollars and fifty four cents it's a lot of money it is but like it's but not worth your wife's life no not at all but what i that's why I like to look at the inflation because you think now you're like $800,000, like I could buy like a decent house in Nashville. You know what I mean? Right. But then you're like, oh, that was $800,000 then. Right. You know, you'd kind of be balling out of control, which is because they said he bought like several new cars and had like a yeah. nice and paid cash mean, for some of this stuff. I'm glad they figured that out because he's a definitely a shady dude. We should have just not. Well, I mean, I'm glad he went to the sentencing, but that's what all kind of got it going. Well, I feel like Cinnamon listens to this podcast because she was like, just get divorced. <laughs> like, like, that's, a, you know, we say that all the time. We say it all the time. Just get divorced. And even as a 14 year old girl, she's like, just get divorced. Yeah. You've done it before. Like, that's logical thinking, which makes you also more of a green flag for her that she's pretty intelligent. She's like, you divorced my mom. Just do it again. Divorce her. Yeah. No yeah. big deal. The trial was set to start in summer 1990, and by this point, the media had gotten a hold of it, and it was becoming a Hollywood story. Patty, angry at David, decided to turn on him. She pled guilty, but as a juvenile, because she was only 17 at the time of the murder. Had she gone to trial, she most likely would have been tried as an adult. Patty was sentenced to 45 to life with the possibility of release at age 25. But to get this deal, she had to testify against David, and Newell believed he now had enough evidence to put him away. Cinnamon's testimony, the five insurance policies, and now Patty's confession. And so on June 15, 1990, the jury found David Brown guilty of first-degree murder. 
and on September 17, 1990, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. David would later die in prison in 2014. During her incarceration, Cinnamon earned a high school diploma and an associate's degree prior to being released in 1992. She had served 10 years of her sentence. Patty was also released in 92, and both girls were under the age of 25 at the time of their release. As for eight-month-old Crystal, she grew up without parents. She was told that her mother had died in a car accident and her father was just in prison. But when Crystal was around 15, she learned the true story about her family. She has since forgiven Patty and Cinnamon, but continued to hold David responsible. Now, there's been several books and shows made about this case, John, so which is why I kind of thought you would have heard about it. Yeah, this is still one that is completely new to me. I had not heard anything about it, but now I want to kind of go back if there's like Lifetime movies or anything like that. Like, I kind of want to go back and watch them because it seems like a very sordid tale. So there is, I know there's a mini um, TV series, uh, Love, Lies, and Murder. And then there's also, a, I guess, a new show that's like The Real Murders of Orange County. And then they have like The Real Murders of Atlanta. Um, so there was an episode on The Real Murders of Orange County about it. And then there was actually a book written by a lady named Ann Rule um, called If You Really Loved Me. And in one of the interviews that I saw of Cinnamon, this lady was also there to kind of help her. She basically helped her tell the story in her book. She, I can't remember if she was some sort of therapist or if she was some sort of criminal writer of some sort. But that's this week's episode, John. I kind of brought a case that you usually bring. Yeah, it's definitely a lot of twists and turns. You know, like, I think the one thing that really hit me kind of hard was how well David Brown must have been at manipulation. Mm -hmm. Because he was able to manipulate Ethel. And have her send her daughters over there. You know, he's a decade older than most of them. They're just at his house hanging out. Dates one, marries one, then marries the other one, right? Then is able to manipulate and convince his 14-year-old daughter as well as his sister-in-law to carry out murder. You know, it's just, it's kind of like the spouse killings that we talk about, you know, where like a husband, like there's always something about that that I think is going to put it a little bit higher on the deadbolt test for me because of like you're supposed to trust this person. This is someone you've agreed to share your life with. So that in itself, it's scary. But to think that somebody is plotting your murder with your younger sister and they're trying to manipulate your stepchild to do it. I mean, it's it's mental ninjutsu. It's terrible. So I don't know. This one was really dark. It was it was a, a really interesting one. Yeah, there's a lot of talk about how it felt that David had to be in control of younger women. And it was kind of thought that since um, Linda had started to mature into this woman and she was becoming a mother, he felt like he couldn't control her anymore. And so that's kind of how the relationship, I guess, flourished and blossomed, if that's what you want to call it, with him and Patty. And so the plan, I mean, like, how do you be okay with, like, killing your sister? Yeah, and I mean, there's something creepy about a 27 year old and like a 17 year old, like like my wife and I were seven years apart, but if she was 21, when we started like talking and stuff like that, I was, you know, I was 27 at the time. There's an age difference there, but it's not like, Hey, you out of high school yet. You know what I mean? So there's care was of a legal drinking age and yeah. So it's It's very different. I get what you're saying. It's the older thing. Like you're not going to be in seventh grade dating someone who's a what freshman in college. I don't know. Just throwing right. out numbers. But I wonder if there's like also like an aspect almost of like some type of pedophilia to it mm-hmm. where it's like, yeah, I liked you. Like we got married when you were 17. Now I'm, you know, 10 years older, 
but you have a 17 year old sister. You know, sister. Or, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Like, I don't know. It, there's just something's not right there. You know what I mean? And I wonder if it's that like now you're old, you're a mom, right? You're not like this like pristine young like teenager, teenager. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. now I'm you know let's get you out of the picture so I can be with your younger sister. You know, who also came from a you know rough home. You know what I mean? Like I'm I'm really interested to learn more about what the dynamic was with Ethel and her children because it seems almost as like he spotted that family as like I can prey on these girls, right? Like like probably. Yeah. I don't know. It's predator behavior for sure. Hundred percent. So if we're talking deadbolt, where are you putting it? I'm gonna put this one I would say I would put it at seven. Okay. And I'm putting it at seven for a couple of different reasons. One the whole idea we talked about, but like not only is my husband plotting to kill me or my wife is plotting to kill me, but they're bringing in my sibling and then my stepchild. Like that's just terrifying across the board. But then number two, there's this idea of, like I said, that predatory behavior, like as a dad, you know, when Millie's old enough to date, like these are, I'm going to be looking for signs. You know what I mean? And like mm-hmm. looking to be like, something's not right about, you know what I mean? And I can imagine if you're a single parent with 11 kids, you probably don't have a ton of time to be like, oh, what are the signs? You know, I'm busy making dinner, doing laundry. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's, what are my kids doing? Who are they really around? You know, what does that look like? Yeah. Like you just really don't have enough time to know what's happening at all hours of the day. You know what I mean? So I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of levels to this. And then the fact that he would just let his kid take the fall for it. You know, that's like that's absolutely heartbreaking to me that you're OK with your kid being in prison like I don't know. That that makes my heart hurt. Yeah, it's a jacked up story. For sure. What about you? Where are you putting it at? I was going to put it about a seven. Look at us rolling double rolling sevens. with the sevens. What's it for you? I think it's just the twists and the turns and the manipulation. Like how someone can have so much control over you and not even, you're not even really realizing it because your brain's just not developed enough. He was able to convince two young girls to kill someone near and dear to them because he thought she quote was going to kill him. Like that's, that's some serious manipulation. And then, like you said, letting her, letting his own daughter sit in jail for something he wanted done while he's living this lavish lifestyle. I sure as heck would have turned on him too. One million percent. And then the fact that he then marries the 17 year old and then gets her pregnant. Pregnant. You know? And then what? And then the eight-month-old didn't rake it. You know, I mean, of course, her dad ends up going to jail. But in the meantime, that baby's still, I guess, with him. I don't know for yeah. certain, but I would assume so. I would imagine so. Yeah, yeah. This is one of those country back road cases, man. Twists and turns, and just a lot of dark stuff rolled into one. This is a good one. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, that is where we fall on the dead bull test for this week's episode. Olivia and I are both coming in at a seven, but we want to know where does the murder of Linda Brown fall on your dead bull test? You can let us know. Reach out to us on Instagram at check the locks pod. Find us on Twitter at check the locks. And if you're not in our Facebook group, what are you doing? Come hang out with us. We would love to get to know you and spend some time with you. Olivia, this case was like a family reunion from hell. Five star review. Get this taste out of my mouth. What do you got for us? You got a five-star review for us this week? 
Dude, this week's five-star review comes from El Mendez 13. They said, I just started listening to your podcast and I am hooked. I've been taking walks at night and I started listening to the Bad Friends episode after I saw the post on Olivia's Instagram. I'm a true crime junkie and I'm officially a new fan of Olivia and John. Thank you so much. You guys rock. You rock El Mendez 13. So let us know who you are so we can send you some cool stuff. We got really cool stickers with mine and John's caricature face on them. Little cartoon stickers. I know mine came uh, yesterday. I was like, these are so stinking cute. Because most of the stuff we do is like blood splatter and yeah. stuff like that. This is just like cute little cute little cartoon podcast. It's fun. But yes, El Mendez, thank you for taking the time to listen. More importantly, thank you for letting us go out with you on those nightly walks and exercise. I don't know if this is what I would be listening to when I'm right. walking by myself at night. But that's what I was thinking. That's scary. You are braver than than we But thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. Just like Olivia said, we would love to send you some stuff, stickers, buttons. We got all sorts of cool little goodies to get out to you. So just let us know where to send it. You can reach out to us again. That's Instagram, check the locks pod. Find us on Twitter, check the locks. Or if you're in our Facebook group, send us a message. Let us know there. If you're not a social person, that is totally fine. Head over to checkthelockspod.com, click that email button, send us an email, let us know where to get that out. And Olivia, if somebody would like to have their review right on the podcast, what is the best way to do that? They need to go to the Apple Podcast app, go to our show's homepage, scroll down where you see all five stars and click all five of them and leave us a little bit of love. But you know what else they can do, John? Go leave me a voicemail. Yes. Leave us a voicemail. We have a lot of new listeners, a lot of new people in the Facebook group, and we want to hear from you. We'd love to hear your voice. If you want to leave us a voicemail, you can actually go into the description of the episode that you're listening to right now. There's a link that you can hit. Leave a voicemail. You can do it from your phone, your computer, whatever. We would love to hear you. Olivia, I know you know we haven't had one in a while, and that is like your favorite thing in the whole world. That's my jam. I just needed to throw that out there because I haven't had one in a long time. So I just needed to let everybody know that they should leave one. Yes, definitely leave us those voicemails. We absolutely love them. And we say this every week, but as far as the reviews, they help us so much. They get us into other shows, recommendations. They help new listeners find the show. They help us grow our community, our family. So if you have taken the time to leave us a review, thank you so much for doing that. We truly appreciate it more than we could tell you. If you have not left one, just like I said before, like Olivia said, Apple Podcasts, you can go into the description of this episode. Guess what? There's another link there you can click, take you right to Apple Podcasts and leave that review. So again, if you've left one, thank you. If not, what are you doing? Take a couple minutes, get one in for us. And as always, if you are interested in financially supporting Check the Locks, you can do so by becoming a patron. Head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks, get signed up today. We got all sorts of cool tiers, exclusive stickers, t-shirts, coffee mugs, all stuff that you can only get for being a patron. Plus, you get the episodes ad-free and early. So if you like Check the Locks but you hate commercials, Patreon is the way to do that. So if you like what we do, you want to throw us a couple bucks every month to help us keep the lights on, head over to patreon.com forward slash check the locks and get signed up today. And if you can't financially support the show, we definitely understand just listening and hanging out with us every week means just as much, if not more. So if that is you, you're listening, you're sharing the show with your friends and family, the people that are important to you, just know that that means the world to us. That, again, is how we're going to grow. We're going to get new listeners. We're going to grow our community. We're going to grow our family. And it's by sharing this little podcast with the people that matter to you. 
So if that is something that you do, you're hanging out with us, you're sending those links, just know that we appreciate you more than we could ever put into words. That is all that we have for this week's case, but please make sure that you are subscribed to check the locks on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss an episode. We will see you again next week with a brand new, truly terrifying true crime case. But until then, don't forget to check the locks. See you next week. Bye. Bye.